This is In Search of the Invisible Army, The Caregiver's Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Havas Links. I'm Paul Eccles. Something I'd not really expected when we started interviews for this project was that many of the carers we spoke to felt that caring had been an enriching experience. Yeah, taking care of her uh, gave me some confidence in life here. It did, uh, because here we are, you are all alone and uh, you have nobody else to turn to. That one made me so strong. Mm -hmm. And I got some confidence that there is nothing I can't do. That's Martha. She sounds pretty chipper there, but caring for a mum was hard. Basically, those years were the toughest of my life and they're emotionally draining. And many times I got myself crying. At night, I would, I would get to bed and shed a lot of tears. No matter how tough the hardship and how painful the heartache they'd endured, I'd say pretty much all the carers we spoke to felt that caring had done good things for them. It taught them things and shaped their character. Whether they felt valued by the world at large is a different story. And that's what we're going to be looking at now. How caring affects a person's sense of themselves, their sense of who they are and what their worth is. So back to Martha. Martha lives in Meru, a town of around 50,000 in central Kenya. She's 50, married, and has three almost grown-up kids. Her mum had diabetes for many years, and for a while, Martha cared for her at arm's length. For Martha, her mum's diabetes was manageable. It was when her mum developed cancer, which spread from her cervix, that things became more difficult. Uh, The problem came when uh, the cancer spread to the lungs, and now she started experiencing cough. She could cough, and the doctor, the oncologist in Nairobi said there's nothing they could do because of her age. Feeding started becoming a problem, and now because of not feeding well, the diabetes now started showing some deterioration. She couldn't do anything, and it was it was care totally taking care of her from feeding, from walking, from raising everything. And when Martha says everything, she means everything. It was overwhelming for her in a lot of different ways. You can imagine for me having to bathe my mother, for me having to dress my mother, having to to feed my mother and to carry her around the house and at times when she couldn't even want me to touch her and I had to call like a neighbor to come and change her diapers. Uh, that thing was, it was, it was not nice. It was not good. The, the care, the, the hygiene bit of it was what was so stressful. In our tradition, we usually even don't see our mothers naked or nakedness. And now here I am, I have to like change everything. And it was, uh, it was so difficult for me, very difficult. The physical burden of carrying, washing and changing her mother wore heavy. She was exhausted too from the lack of sleep. This was common amongst all the carers we spoke to, even those who were generally getting on pretty well in their caring role. For Martha though, as for some others, the strains were emotional and psychological as well. So many times if she refused to like eat, I would also not eat. I would sit at home and look at her and tell her now she's frustrating me. And uh, at times I would even break and cry in front of her and she would feel so bad. So one time she told me, Martha, just take me home. You need a life of your own. Just take me home and let me die there and you continue having your life. And uh, for a mother to tell you that, 
it meant that she has given up and she just wants to, to let you be. Seeing my mother deteriorate from a very strong woman to a very weak person, it was not very good for me. So basically, health-wise, I gained a lot of weight because of, uh, I think it was stress. I got to 104 kgs. I got depressed. I got no hypertension, and I became careless sort of with my diet and my exercises. And uh, my whole life was just on her. I took everything, concentrated all my efforts on her. All in all, it combined to create a very stressful environment for Martha. I'm sure that that might sound obvious, but it's worth considering the severity of this and the effect that it can have on a carer. Here's Emily Holtzhausen, Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Carers UK. What we see for people who have got quite stressful caring responsibilities or others, they're twice as likely to suffer from ill health. For amongst our members, we have about 80% of them uh, suffer from a stress-related illness as well because of some of the strains of caring. Caring is so closely linked with chronic stress that researchers actually use it as a model for studying the effects of chronic stress on people. And the problem is that carers often find it difficult to get help. I have to say, we, when we've done research as well, we found that a number of carers also put off vital treatment because they couldn't get the right support and advice and information for the person that they care for. Martha talks a lot about rushing and about forgetting herself. I heard this a lot from other carers too, that their health and well-being had to come second, that, as we discussed in the last podcast, healthcare professionals were preoccupied only with the health of the person that they looked after. Because even the time we took her, we took her to hospital, nobody ever asked me, Mother, how are you coping? How difficult is this? And help me, at least give me tips on how to cope with it. So they left me to handle her and handle myself. Martha just about managed in spite of the strain she was under. But in such highly demanding scenarios, people can reach burnout. Becky, another carer we spoke to, seems to have suffered this in the past. As a young carer, she looked after her mum as well as her brother and sister. Carrying this burden single-handedly, the intensity of it all became too much for Becky, and eventually she decided she had to leave home. Dr Sarah Jarvis told me that in order to avoid situations like Becky's, carers need support and reassurance that it's OK to take time for themselves. Sarah is a GP and clinical director of patient.co.uk. They need to know in their hearts perhaps as well as their heads that in fact maybe leaving their loved one for a few hours or sometimes in respite for a few days is the best thing that they could do for that person because that's the best way of ensuring that they are in the best position to look after them long term. It's not just the intensity of caring that stopped carers taking breaks. A number of times carers told me that they found it hard to make time for themselves without feeling guilty about doing so. Here's Shazia, who's featured throughout this series. She cares for a mum who has Parkinson's. Sometimes it does put like a lot of self-doubt in my head. That like, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough, or, you know, what, what more could I be doing for my mum? And, or sh- should I, you know, stop working part-time and spending more time with her? And it's stuff like that when I think, oh my God, like, how, how many more years has she got? You know, is she going to be here to see me have children or me to get married or whatever? And... It, it sort of it sort of makes me feel quite doubtful of myself and just whether I whether I am doing enough. Planning anything in such an unstable environment can seem unfeasible. Here's Martha. Uh, you can imagine living with a terminally sick person in the house 
and don't know what's going to happen anytime. So every time you are on flight mode, every time you don't know what would happen. And everybody could see, even my friends who came to stay with me, they could see everything is just crashing. Because now reality dawned on me that things are getting to the worst and everything is going to come to an end one time. And I was not ready for that. So living with that anticipation and fear made everything so unstable for us. This sense of instability, of not knowing what was coming, was really common amongst the carers we spoke to. And it became apparent that the pervasive lack of control that carers felt they had over their lives contributed to the stress and anxiety that they experienced. So it's always that uncertainty of what if they put her in a home or something when she's in hospital or when she is in hospital, when is she going to come home because she's been in twice now for about a year. But when she's at home, it's still, you know, it's still trying to remember stuff like, have I put the key in the key safe for the carers? Has the tablets been delivered by the pharmacist? What if she's had a fall? Even when I'm out with friends at the cinema, it's still stuff that I worry about. Oh, what if there's lots of traffic? It sort of made me quite anxious because I just don't want to let her down. But I, I still think that there's always that uncertainty of what if she gets an infection and what if she goes back into hospital? That's That constant fear is always there, I think. The effects of this lack of control, of the intensity of the caring role, went beyond health. In general, the health and well-being of the carers we spoke to was symptomatic of their overall care picture. As the American writer and surgeon Atul Gawande discussed in his 2014 book, Being Mortal, a sense of autonomy is crucial to maintaining self-esteem and ultimately well-being. All we ask is to be allowed to remain the writers of our own story, he writes. The story is ever-changing. Over the course of our lives we may encounter unimaginable difficulties, Our concerns and desires may shift, but whatever happens, we want to retain the freedom to shape our lives in ways consistent with our character. I think some of the carers we spoke to felt that they were not the writers of their own story. Even amongst those coping well, there was a sense that the unpredictability of people's situations had led them to curb their ambitions at least a little. When I asked carers about their plans for the future, there was a real hesitancy to count on too much. Instead, the approach was to take each day as it comes and not to look too far ahead. When your situation is prone to flux and change, keeping expectations down and planning only for the short term are probably good coping mechanisms. But some carers can grow to feel restricted to the point of being trapped, as Emily Holtzhausen of Carers UK explains. Some people say they do get stuck in a cycle, so it can be very difficult and challenging, particularly if carers are on a low income, they don't have the opportunity necessarily to go out and do other things, or they don't have access to enough breaks to be able to give them a wide variety of life. Martha talked about her life being on hold, something we heard a lot from the carers we spoke to. It was not easy because my family deserted us when they noticed that things are getting tight. Everybody kept off. Was tough for me, yeah. And the fact that uh, you call on family to come and help you, at least even encourage you, the family was not willing to to come in because basically they are scared you're going to tell them to help you with finances, so they kept off. So emotionally, financially, everything just went down for me. The real tragedy was that some carers couldn't see a way out or any possibility of changing their situation, whilst the person that they cared for was still alive. This was the case for Leanne, who featured in our second podcast. Leanne's a full-time carer to her mum, who has schizophrenia. 
I feel like there's a dead end in front of me. There's no way out. I literally don't know. Don't know what to do. I feel lost. Do you have any ambitions for the future? Well, obviously, uh, I would love to, like... I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm completely cut off from caring role, but I would love to go find a part-time job. I'm, like, doing hairdresser, which is I enjoy doing. Try to get my life to... Mon try in some kind of normality, really, but uh, I don't see that happening. Do you feel like your life is fulfilling? No. No. I feel like a failure. Why do you feel like a failure? Because caring is not is not a job, is it? I would love to go and find a nine to five job, earn with my own money, and live with high head, you know, up. For Leanne, caring has stripped her of access to a job, close personal relationships, and good health. The wide variety of life that Emily Holtzhausen described. The things that we commonly derive a sense of status and wider purpose from. Other carers we spoke to felt this too, and it was this that seemed pivotal in how carers felt about their role. Some of Leanne's feelings relate to the lack of value she feels society attaches to what she's doing, and carers' invisibility overall. She talked of feeling intimidated going to parties or her daughter's parents' evenings because other people had jobs and she didn't, so she felt inferior to them. It's tragic that Leanne should feel that her life has come to a standstill in this way. For Martha, her life only started to move again after her mum had died, but starting again was hard. The intensity of the relationships created by caring can make grief even harder to cope with. Martha said she'd never been closer to her mum than in the final years of her life. When I spoke to her, it was only eight months since her mum had died. She felt at once relieved and totally lost. And uh, when everybody was crying that now she's dead and what, for me it was like, I thank God my mom is never going to suffer again. I am going to have a new life now. At least I'll be myself and I will not see her suffer the way she's suffering. I miss her presence in the house regardless of what she was going through. But now I come to the house. She's not there. I want to tell her some things I can tell her. I want to cook a special meal I can do it. In his book Levels of Life, Julian Barnes described his hatred of the terms people used to talk about his wife's death. Phrases like she passed didn't fit with his experience of grief. He tells of how a friend approached him at a social event that he and his wife would normally have attended together and said, there's someone missing. This he found much more fitting. For carers like Martha, it's not just a person that's missing, it's a way of life. Okay, there was a, 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 a sort of emptiness that to occupy myself so much on her, now there is no more. So there was emptiness. I felt some sadness, yes, that I'll never see her again. And then I felt totally lost. That So then what next? Everything she built her daily routine around had gone. And it's not just death that can cause this sense of loss. The move to residential care can be just as painful as Dr Sarah Jarvis... GP and clinical director of patient.co.uk, told me. Very often, carers have completely, effectively given up themselves in order to care for their loved one. They have given everything. And yet sometimes, perhaps because of their own failing health, or simply because that task has become so monumental, they have realised that their all is not enough. Now, that often means that the patient has to be moved to residential care. And that is 
a huge bereavement for the carer. They've suddenly gone from not having two minutes themselves to this great, vast, empty canvas, which can seem very, very bleak for them. And at the same time, they will often feel guilty, completely inappropriately guilty, because they've done such a great job. But they'll often feel guilty that they didn't do more. In the UK, 2.6 million people start caring every year. But each year, nearly as many people find that their caring responsibilities come to a close. Emily Holtzhausen from Carers UK says that those coming out the other side of this turnstile of care can find themselves abandoned. The network, oddly, that they had before of health professionals are no longer obviously interested in them. And the friends and family that they had a strong network of before have fallen away over time as they've not been able to keep up with them or share experiences with them. So they can become extremely lonely, isolated, without the contact that they had before. So it's very important that people are supported there and helped back to find connections back into the community. And that can be quite difficult. Amongst the many conflicting emotions that Martha felt, there was also a sense that her life was finally hers again. I feel energized. I feel a lot of things now need to be done. I want to do all the things that I never did. I, I want to take care of my health. The things that were messed up during that time, that's when I'm repairing. So basically, I'm concentrating on making myself happy and making me be what I should have been. I want to just concentrate in making myself a better person and my family, at least to concentrate on loving them and making them more comfortable. As I mentioned at the start, Martha was really positive about her caring experience at times. Her renewed enthusiasm for life included a determination to make use of the things her experience had taught her. And after caring for my mom, now I noticed a lot of very many strong things that I didn't know and strengths that I didn't know I had. I noticed that I can face uh, challenging situations. I noticed that it, there is a lot of joy when a sick person gets some love. That taking care of my mother has made me notice a strength in me that I can also want to take care of somebody else, apart from now my mother. I would want to have an organization that I get these sick people who are neglected by their families and help them. So it has given me some strength and some known strengths and qualities and things that have come up that I would not have known I had. So that one, that one is something that has, has made me grow. The, the caring has made me a tough person and brought up some human, humanness from me that I didn't know I had. Note that Martha said she'd like to start up her own caring organisation. For some of the carers we spoke to, caregiving had opened up opportunities beyond their role looking after the person they cared for, opportunities that inspired a sense of purpose that they'd not had before. One such carer is Floris. Floris lives in the Netherlands with his daughter and wife. His wife is MS, and his experiences of looking after her have inspired new ambitions in him. Yes, and I kind of create them uh, right now because of um, all the energy I get from um, taking care of my wife. I'm, I'm really busy with um, raising awareness uh, about MS. Uh, so I started my own blog, but I also have a new site, uh, platform.ms. And 
my ambition is to make it uh, my own company so I can uh, make a living uh, with that side. I get a lot of energy of, of helping people. That last remark is worth dwelling on. We'll come to the many skills and abilities carers gain through their experiences in a minute. But the one acquired quality that was most universally reported, and maybe this will sound obvious, was a sense of empathy and a deeply ingrained caring for others, even amongst those that never really considered themselves particularly caring people. And this seems to be a real motivator in why many carers, like Floris and others we spoke to, seek out advocacy and support roles that allow them to use what they've learned through their experiences to help others. And what they'd learned was pretty considerable in a lot of cases. As we discussed in our second podcast, the time carers spend looking after a person can lead them to become experts through lived experience. From the conversations with the carers we spoke to, I found that they often knew the disease or condition of the person they were caring for inside out. They understood associated treatments and side effects, knew how to navigate healthcare systems and speak to professionals, and in some cases they had expert medical and care skills, often coming up with creative workarounds to solve problems that healthcare professionals hadn't even thought of. They also often had a critical view on services from a very unique perspective. Besides knowledge specific to healthcare, many felt they'd gained other transferable skills and quality, like time management, perseverance, ability to work under high stress, organisation and a sense of responsibility. Beth Britton, who featured in our second podcast, cared for a dad who had vascular dementia. Like Flourish, she started a blog, hers called D for Dementia. It's become hugely popular and Beth's now renowned as a consultant, campaigner and writer in the field of dementia care. And I'm very fortunate that the way the work has developed for me from the blog um, through working on the G8 Dementia Summit with the government and working with Department of Health, Public Health England, Care Quality Commission and lots of care providers in particular. I have the opportunity now to, to really try and sort of influence and change the care that people receive and there's nothing I love more than the sort of the consultancy work that I do working with care providers. Armed with all these skills and driven by a desire to help, Carers can be a real force for good in healthcare. There are some truly remarkable examples of carers who have used their ability to find workarounds for the difficulties their loved ones face to create fixes that could benefit all. One such example is Fixing Dad. Fixing Dad is a 12-week programme created by Ian and Anthony Whittington, born out of their experiences of helping their sometimes stubborn dad overcome his diabetes. This was documented in a film by the same name. And now they were talking about potential amputation. So we decided um, that we were going to step in and, and try and do something. Initially, we just we needed more positivity than the, this idea that a condition could be managed, lifelong, progressive, incurable. It wasn't good enough for us. This is you. This is us. This is your grandchildren. This is why we need you on board. We had the photo albums out. It was about really engaging him emotionally and, and we think that was the, the key turning point for, for fixing Dad. He, his blood glucose levels have, have come down through the floor. So he's deemed to be in full remission from the condition. And we managed to get him off all of his medications, eight of his medications. He's just on one now. The 13-week programme, it's really about getting an understanding about what you're eating. So the biggest single feature that, that we feel, and it was something that was really important to us, was that you know we did this together with Dad. It's actually networked, so by by joining on the app, you, you effectively can be a fixer or a fixie. So let's say you had two children, you could nominate them as your fixies. Based on the three-month the three program, yeah, on average, people are losing about 7.7 .7 kilos 
um, over that period. Average daily fasted blood glucose reductions about one and a half mmols per litre. So that is significant because it can be the difference between to being categorically type 2 diabetic for life. If six and day can do anything, it is inspiring people to try and do this together. Of course, not all carers feel able to extend their role to activism or developing apps. Some may just want to get on with caring for their loved one and living their own life feeling like they have the support and recognition that they need. Which is where we started right at the beginning of this series, with Shazia. I think carers are sort of almost invisible in society and carers are taken for granted. I, I think they... I think there's not enough out there, if I'm honest. I don't think there's anywhere near enough support out there for carers. I think you have to sort of go out of your way or look yourself to find it. I've sort of come to take on the like aim to make to make sure that no 11 or 12 year old is in the same position that I was. And who should be responsible for helping Shazia achieve her aim? For David Hunt, CEO of healthcare communications agency Havaslinks Europe, the answer is simple. Whether you're in the public or the private sector, it's everyone in healthcare's concern. David told me that yes, healthcare professionals and systems should make care and wellbeing their priority, but so should private companies operating in healthcare. Our ambition as an agency is to help people and to really help people live well. So from a purely logical point of view, it just makes sense for us to really support carers and make a difference for them so they in turn can make a difference for patients. But then if you look at it more broadly as an industry and stakeholders within healthcare and within pharma, I think it should be everyone's priority and also responsibility to do what they can to make a difference to the lives of, of unpaid carers. I think everyone has a role to play within the healthcare space, so not just traditional pharma organisation but also new players, from technology companies that are revolutionising healthcare to other creative agencies like ourselves. From a purely commercial point of view, it represents a huge opportunity to do something different and add a lot of value to, to healthcare. But equally as an individual, I think it's an opportunity to, to really help and make a difference where it counts. In the opening podcast of this series, Anil Patil from Carers Worldwide said that carers were among us, but that we didn't have the eyes to see them. So perhaps the first step is to look for them and listen to them. Here's Beth Britton again. I think the number one way to value carers is actually to ask them what they want and to deliver that. I think it's to recognise the uniqueness of individual carers. There is no one size fits all, and that will mean that we have to have a myriad of, of different solutions and we have to be very flexible about what we offer people appreciating that they are absolutely individual in their own right and that their need to a family life and what that entails um, needs to be supported. There should be an urgency to act now more than ever. Our healthcare systems are struggling. In the UK, the Care Quality Commission has, in recent times, described the NHS as straining at the seams. Its Chief Inspector of Hospitals, Professor Mike Richards, said that it stands on a burning platform of outdated care. Like other healthcare systems, the NHS is built upon a heroic model of saving or curing people when they're acutely unwell. We go to hospital when things are broken or get too bad to manage, and they fix us up and send us off good as new. But things don't work like that anymore. As we live longer, we're facing unprecedented levels of chronic illness, conditions that can't be cured and have to instead be managed over a long period of time. This is draining resources from services that are already overstretched, Funding growth for the NHS this decade stands at 1% a year, whereas historically it's been at 4% a year. The overwhelming evidence is that healthcare needs to move away from treating sickness and towards promoting wellness and keeping people out of hospitals and doctor surgeries and at home. Carers are absolutely crucial to this. Here's Dr Mahiben Marathapu, 
former senior fellow to the CEO of the NHS and co-founder of the tech-enabled home care provider, Sarah. For Mahiben, there needs to be seamless integration of carers into the healthcare system. We need to see much better integration. I think we need to see a structured approach to supporting, empowering and recognising carers so that they feel really valued and they are seen not as an invisible part of the system, but as a visible and central part of the system. Whatever your perspective, the voices of Shazia, Martha, Leanne and the other carers we've heard from in these podcasts outline pretty clear objectives for change. A nine-year-old should never have to face the fact that her mum has a chronic illness alone, armed with no more than the news that it's only going to get worse. Systems, professionals and services should support and involve carers, so that a mother raising three daughters whilst caring for her own mum doesn't feel isolated and alone to the point of despair. And carers should be recognised and empowered, so that rather than surviving as they have to, they can live their lives healthy and full as they would want to. Yes, there's a lot to be done but the size of the task shouldn't dissuade those inspired from making headway. I'll leave you with Anil Patel from Carers Worldwide. If I could give an analogy, it's a, like a drop of ink in a bucket full of water. You don't need a whole bottle of ink to change the colour. This podcast series was brought to you by Havas Links. For more information about the things you've heard or to read the white paper, go to invisible-army.com. I'd like to thank you for listening and I'd like to thank all of our contributors for their time and participation, especially Martha, Shazia, Leanne, Floris and the other carers and support workers we interviewed throughout our research. This podcast was written and narrated by me, Paul Eccles, with editorial support from Caroline Crampton and production and editing by Dan Lord in the Studio 6 team at Havas Links. Thanks also go to Mark Duffy and Soap Studio for their support. (laughs) 